So let's start in Ephesians chapter 1. You're welcome to open your Bibles or just follow along in your notes. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And you'll notice I've underlined a couple of things there in answering the question, when did this take place? And the answer, before the foundation of the world. And why? According to the good pleasure of His will. All right, next verse, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Speaking of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And if you're using an ESV translation, you'll notice that there is a note in the margin there that says, literally, before times eternal. So again, before the world began, and why? According to His own purpose and grace. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And if you're using an ESV or an NASB, you'll notice again a footnote there that says literally before times eternal. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning and study your word and worship together in spirit and in truth. We ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world according to your own purposes and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we come to chapter 7 in our confession of faith of God's covenant, and I have two objectives today that I'd like to to uh, cover. Number one, just to pique your interest on the subject of covenant theology. I think it's an exciting subject, and I hope that you'll find it interesting and exciting too. And number two, I want to address in the beginning in this first lesson some general objections to covenant theology. So I'd like to start by reading an opening statement that was made by Charles Spurgeon from a sermon that he preached on October 31st, 1912. The sermon was titled, The Wondrous Covenant, and he chose as his text Hebrews 8.10. He opened his sermon as follows. The doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and of grace. May God grant us now the power to instruct and you the grace to receive instruction on 
this vital subject. So you'll notice that he mentions the covenant of works and covenant of grace, and I provided a URL there for you that you can uh, read the rest of the sermon. It's an excellent sermon. And as you can tell from the opening statement, it's a, it's a very bold statement. Whenever pastor opens his Bible and says, let's, let's, let's turn in our Bibles, and he, the first few minutes of his sermon uh, uh, generates our, our interest in the subject, and, and I hope that, that with an opening statement like that, um, it would provoke your interest in the subject, because who among us would not want to be a master of divinity without taking out a student loan? <laughs> I want to read to you a statement from a more contemporary author, Sam Renahan. Sam Renahan is the pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California. He's also the author of this book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom. This is a book that we have in our library, and it was published in 2020, so hot off the press, on the subject of covenant theology, and Sam Renahan had this to say. Studying covenant theology is a devotional experience that enriches one's understanding of the unity of God's purposes, enhances preaching from any text, informs one's understanding of the church, assures God's people of the security of their salvation, and much more. But above all, studying the covenant theology of the Bible magnifies the majesty of the triune God's plan of redemption. Covenant theology seeks to understand and explain the united purpose of God in all history, past, present, and future. Covenant theology covers by necessity the entirety of the scriptures, beginning with Adam and creation and ending with Christ and the consummation. So you'll notice again a few things that I've highlighted, some key phrases. He talks about the unity of God's purposes, the plan of redemption, the united purpose of God in all history, past, present, and future. So you can see that it's, it's not a small subject, it's not a peripheral subject. Um, it's been called a uh, framework through which we understand and interpret Scripture. And this brings up the subject of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of, of Bible interpretation. You've probably heard of the literal, historical, grammatical approach to interpreting Scripture, and we certainly uh, hold to that. But if you've done any reading of Reformed authors, you'll eventually come across another term that has reference to uh, hermeneutics and covenant theology called the analogia fide. Analogia fide, which means the analogy of faith. So I want to uh, define that term for you because it, 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 it does have a bearing on, on covenant theology and how it differs uh, from some other theologies. So this is from Earl Blackburn's book. He was the editor of a book called Covenant Theology, A Baptist Distinctive. And I believe Fred Malone was the author of this particular segment. And so regarding the Analogia Fide, he says, Most evangelical and Reformed scholars agree that Scripture is to be interpreted literally, grammatically, and historically. Though agreeing on these things... Sincere scholars still differ on how Scripture interprets itself literally, especially in regard to prophecy and fulfillment, typology, parables, metaphors, etc. Reformed hermeneutics adds one more principle to the literal grammatical historical method, which is often rejected or diminished by dispensational evangelicals. This is the analogia fide, the analogy of faith, which characterized Reformed theology. It is more than analogia scriptura, scripture interprets scripture. 
it means that the overall theology of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, must be involved in the final interpretation of particular texts and contexts of Scripture. Burkhoff calls this the grammatical, historical, theological method of the Reformed faith. And as a little bit of an illustration, I, I was listening to a, a podcast with uh, Michael Glodo. He was being interviewed. He was talking about covenant theology and, and contrasting uh, covenant and dispensational theology. And he said, you don't get covenant theology by looking at the pixels. You get covenant theology by looking at the portrait. And that's not adding something on because the pixels make the portrait. And hopefully for the photographers in the room here, you can understand and apply that analogy. So what is he saying here? <clears throat> we certainly recognize that we, there are different genres of Scripture. There's narrative, epistle, parable, poetry, prophecy. And when we're interpreting Scripture, we look at it every. We look at individual sentences. We look at, at the, the uh, literary context. We look at the historical context. The the sentences take place within paragraphs, which take place within chapters and within books. And we we acknowledge all of those. But when we're doing that, we're also keeping in mind that the scriptures were written over a period of fifteen hundred years by forty different authors in three different languages, on three different continents. And so, even as we're, we're zeroing in on the sentences and, and, and interpreting them uh, the way they would have been understood, we also recognize that when we step back, uh, there's a, a bigger picture. We want to take the, the entirety of the Scripture and, and uh, keeping in mind what Sam Renahan had said, the unity of God's purpose, the plan of redemption. And so we're going to factor those in to our uh, understanding of the Scripture. And so... That's one of the things that uh, we see when we, when we come to the subject of covenant theology. So I want to take a look at uh, just, uh, we, we've introduced the fact that there are going to be some differences between covenant theology and particularly dispensational theology. And, and, but let me make reference back to one more thing, a couple of things that I, that I underlined here. You'll notice that Earl Blackburn had said, sincere scholars still differ on how the scripture interprets itself so forth. And I think it's important to make a note of that because when we're, when we're talking about the differences between dispensational and covenant theology, we're talking about um, an in-house discussion among conservative Bible scholars. We're not anathematizing anyone here. I know sometimes when we talk about differences, sometimes, sometimes we can get uh, uh, it gets a little bit uh, uh, we can be a little bit nervous about that. But, but it's okay to, to, to critique uh, other people uh, and, and their writings, and, and we can do so in a friendly manner, and that's how I'm uh, going to do so here. And I, I appreciate how Earl Blackburn says, good and godly men can still differ, but we can still talk about those differences in a friendly manner. All right, so that's what we're going to do here. And one of the reasons that we want to address some of the differences is because we, we don't live in a monastery, we don't live in an echo chamber, we don't live in a theological bubble, hopefully where we're only just interacting with people that we agree with. We do interact with, with other Christians who come from different uh, backgrounds. Uh, I have good friends who uh, attend uh, different variations of dispensational churches. I have family members who um, are dispensational. And so looking at some of the differences allows us to just be able to interact with one another. And, and of course, we want to do so in a, in a gracious manner with gentleness and respect. So I'm going to read to you just a paragraph from a uh, modern systematic theology. We have a copy of this 
in our library, so you're, you're welcome to uh, take a look at that at some point. But it'll just give you some of the, the um, primary objections that a dispensationalist or, or a different variation of dispensationalist would have toward covenant theology, and then I'll respond to, to some of those. So it says, Some theologians assert that the biblical covenants should be understood through theologically derived covenants. Covenant theology affirms three such covenants, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. While there may be certain truths associated with these theological covenants, such as God's having a plan, a salvation plan from eternity, and God working with his people on the basis of grace after the fall, these are not actual covenants found in the Bible. Their inclusion in discussions of God's covenant program involves saying more than Scripture has explicitly said and can lead to confusion and wrong views. Theologically derived covenants imposed on the biblical covenants can alter God's intended revelation. Covenant theology, for example, has often used the extra-biblical covenant of grace idea to deny the biblical distinction between Israel and the church. Supposedly, if all people are saved by grace through faith alone, there can be no distinctions between Israel and the church. But this does not follow. The affirmation of this covenant of grace has often led to the false position of replacement theology or supersessionism in which the church is viewed as the replacement or fulfillment of Israel in such a way that God is no longer working with Israel as a nation. But while the saints of every age are saved by grace alone through faith alone, there are distinctions in the people of God. Now, do you notice the contrast between the paragraph that we read in the very beginning from Charles Spurgeon and the paragraph that we just read here. Because Charles Spurgeon said, He who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. The paragraph that we just read here says that holding to a covenant of works or covenant of grace can lead to confusion and wrong views. So I I hope you notice the contrast here. These are kind of diametrically opposed to one another. So that, that creates a little bit of tension in the air. But, but I want to respond to some of these, uh, some of the statements have been made and um, um, make some observations regarding some of the things that were said. So the first thing uh, that, was, uh, that I'll note is, and I've underlined these phrases there in the paragraph, was they mentioned the extra-biblical covenant of grace idea. Now let me ask you a question. Can anyone think of an extra-biblical word that is commonly used among Bible-believing Christians that we all accept and we all agree upon, but it's an extra-biblical word? Trinity. The Trinity, okay. So the idea that, that we can't use extra-biblical words is, is something that, um, that we recognize that we can use words to describe what we see in the Bible. So my observation would be that this is the, what's called the word-concept fallacy, where someone says, well, this particular phrase or this word is not in the Bible, so therefore it's, it's not a correct idea. Uh, and I want to read something that A.W. Pink had to say about this statement. And I want to point out something here. Um, this particular uh, systematic theology that we read from was published in 2017, and... Um, Eighty years prior to that, A.W. Pink discussed this uh, question or this concern 
Um, he wrote a book called The Divine Covenants, which is a, a book on covenant theology between 1934 and 1938. And so here's what he said at that time in his book. He said, let it be pointed out that as there is no one verse in the Bible which expressly affirms there are three divine persons in the Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal, co-glorious, nevertheless, by carefully comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know that such is the case. In like manner, there is no one verse in the Bible which categorically states that the Father entered into a formal agreement with the Son, then on His executing a certain work, He should receive a certain reward. Nevertheless, a careful study of different passages obliges us to arrive at this conclusion. Holy Scripture does not yield up its treasures to the indolent. And as long as the individual preacher is willing to let Dr. Schofield or Mr. Pink do his studying for him, he must not expect to make much progress in divine things. Ponder Proverbs 2, 1-5. through 5. Now, if any of you have ever read A.W. Pink before, uh, you, you know that Mr. Pink can be uh, rather pointed in some of the statements that he made. And of course, we live in a time in the 21st century where it seems like uh, people are very sensitive to any type of criticism and everybody needs a safe space and so forth. But I think you get the point of what he's trying to say is that um, just because the term is not in the Bible doesn't mean that we can't use it to describe uh, what we see in the Bible. I also want to make reference to Michael Horton's systematic theology. His uh, systematic theology was uh, published in 2011. Um, actually, I'm, let me say the next argument that I want to deal with uh, is the, 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 uh, the charge of replacement theology. So you'll notice that, and how many of you heard that term before? Well, if you hold to covenant theology, then you hold to replacement theology. And I think it's important when we... Um, when we critique other people, we want to make sure that we're actually representing them correctly. In other words, we want to make sure that if we disagree with someone, that we uh, represent what they believe correctly and not misrepresent them, because to do so would be a straw man argument. And so let me just say that covenant theology does not believe that the church replaces Israel. So let me try to prove that to you from the writings of some covenant theologians. Michael Horton in his Systematic Theology, which was published in 2011, said this. He says, As I have argued, I do not believe that the New Testament teaches that the church is a replacement for Israel, but rather that Gentiles have been grafted onto the vine of the true Israel, from which the original nucleus of New Covenant disciples emerged. Salvation has come to the world through the Jews. Jesus was sent to the Jews. The gospel was first brought to the Jews and the kingdom grew from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In the end, it will be brought full circle from the ends of the earth back to Jerusalem again. So I hope that what you see in this statement is, and so I guess what I would say is, whenever someone just makes the, the kind of broad brush statement of, well, you just believe in replacement theology, it is just that. It's a generalization. It's kind of a broad brush stroke. But I want you to, to see that what Michael Horton is saying here is there's there's... Uh, more nuanced to it than that. And as you can see, he, he says straight up that the church is not a replacement for Israel. And then he goes on to define exactly what he does hold to. Michael Horton also wrote a book in 2006 called Introducing Covenant Theology, in which he made a, a, a similar statement. He says, the church does not replace Israel. 
recalling the fig tree that withered at Jesus' curse, symbolizing the pronouncement of woes and the parables of the kingdom, the picture is of an Israel that, despite its national judgment as a covenant breaker, is nevertheless kept alive by extensive pruning and grafting at the level of individual salvation through Christ. After bringing in the full number of elect Gentiles, God will pour out His Spirit on the Jewish people in mass, Romans 11, 25-32. So once again, this is pretty straightforward. And, and, and this book, I just want to point out, uh, in as friendly a manner as I can, and I, and I recognize that for the average person uh, in the pew, we don't have time necessarily to, to go to the library and do lots of research and read all these different books to know what everybody's position is. However, I think it's important for people who are, are in the halls of academia, who are, who are teaching in seminaries, they do have access to the writings of other people. And so I think it's important to take that into account, you know, to do your primary source research to make sure that we represent other people correctly. And so Michael Horton says, the church does not replace Israel. And then he goes on to, to describe what he does believe. And, but one thing I'll, that I'll point out, I've underlined, where it says individual salvation. And I want to make sure to distinguish uh, one of the differences between dispensationalism and covenant theology is that covenant theology most certainly holds that there is a place for uh, salvation for individual Jews. And, and as Michael Horton said, in mass uh, at the end of the age. Um, but to say that there's no, no, no further plan of any sort involving any Jews is just not accurate. And so that's my critique on that. One final uh, statement that I want to read to you because I thought it was very articulate. <clears throat> Sam Storms, in his book, Kingdom Come, which was published in 2013, and again, this was available um, during the time that uh, the previous statement that we read was written, he said... <clears throat> And you'll notice in the very beginning, he, he actually defines what true replacement theology would be. He says, Replacement theology would assert that God has uprooted and eternally cast aside the olive tree, which is Israel, and has planted in its place an entirely new one, the church. All the promises given to the former have been transferred to the latter. So pause there for just a minute. If there was going to be a true replacement theology, what he's just defined here is that's what it would be. But he doesn't believe that. Michael Horton doesn't believe that. And so he goes on to say, he says, but this is not what Paul says. He clearly states that there is but one olive tree rooted in the promises given to the patriarchs. In this one tree, that is, in this one people of God, there are both believing Jews, natural branches, and believing Gentiles, unnatural branches. Together, they constitute the one people of God the one new man, the true Israel, in and for whom the promises will be fulfilled. This one people, of course, is the church. Now, as we, as we look at this, again, I just want to point out, when we, whenever someone uh, critiques another person's position, it's very important to make sure that, that you critique them accurately. And so that's why my observation is that if you just throw out and just say, if you hold a covenant theology, you hold a replacement theology, and I would say it's more nuanced than that. So let's just let's just be fair, you know, in our representation in our representation of other people, because um, covenant theology does not hold to so-called replacement theology as just in this broad brush kind of way. 
the, the, the third point that I want to make is, um, because in the article that we read, it said that if you hold to covenant theology, you're saying more than Scripture has explicitly said, and this is something that is imposed on the biblical covenants. So I want to make reference to just, just a couple of points from church history, because I think it, in an article like this, and, and I'm not just picking on this one article. I've been in several different dispensational churches, and there's, there's, there's different types of dispensationalism. And this has been kind of a, I think of a theme that, that is, is, is pervasive maybe in dispensational circles. And so I just want to point out regarding church history, whenever you say something like that, whenever you say like you're imposing something on the biblical covenants, there's almost a, a subtle presupposition that the authors, the framers of, of covenant theology who have kind of articulated the doctrine, it's almost as if, well, you had access to the information about dispensational kind of teaching, but you didn't really like it, so you wanted to kind of make your own kind of system because, you know, if you want to get a PhD, you kind of have to come up with something new so that you can uh, get, a, get your PhD on it. Um, so there's, 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 there's like a subtle hint of that to me as I, I read the article. But I want to point out a couple of things. Uh, when did the Protestant Reformation take place? I think it's in your notes there. Yeah. <laughs> About 1517, I think, is when uh, uh, Luther nailed his theses to the, uh, the door on the Wittenberg Chapel. When was the second London Baptist Confession published? 1677. Now, we, 1689 is the date that we normally attach to the to the uh, confession, but it was actually published in 1677 uh, for the first time. Not not the first London confession, but the second confession was actually published in 1677. When did dispensationalism as a system come onto the scene? 1800s, 1830s. Good answer. Uh, it's considered to be about 1830, and that's when John Nelson Darby made his uh, multiple voyages over to the United States to, to bring uh, that teaching. And so the, the point that I'm making here is that dispensationalism as a, as a very detailed system did not exist during the time when uh, the guys who were writing about covenant theology and kind of uh, you know, putting that down in documentation. So I do think it's just helpful to recognize that dispensationalism does have a history, just like covenant theology has a history, um, and I, I want to commend to you a series because I recognize this is a big subject and I recognize that m- probably most people in this room have come from a dispensational background. I did uh, in an informal survey that we took the last time I was here. I think most of you, you know, came, came from a dispensational background and, and um, it's very pervasive in our culture in America. And so I know it takes time to kind of like some of these things may be, be new to you. They, they were new to me, but I had to do uh, some reading and research, and, and one of the things that I thought was helpful was a series that Brian Borgman did on uh, dispensationalism. It was a part of his 60-part survey of church history that he did in his Sunday school class. Brian Borgman is a pastor of um, Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. He's a professor of Reformed Baptist Seminary. And one of the things that I appreciated about this series is, for one, he's very gracious toward dispensationalist as he's discussing dispensationalism and and like I mentioned before in Earl Blackburn's book we need to recognize that sincere scholars and they are sincere but we can come to some different views but he's very gracious toward uh, dispensationalism 
He also recognizes that there are differences within dispensationalism because one of the things I think that covenant theologians maybe sometimes do, or people from covenant theology, is we kind of lump dispensationalists all into one kind of um, category, but there's actually there's classic dispensationalism, there's progressive dispensationalism, there's leaky dispensationalism, so we need to make sure that we represent other people fairly, and Brian Borgman does so in his series. And in his own words, uh, he was a dyed-in-the-wool dispensationalist. So he's not someone who just grew up in covenant theology and that's all he ever knew, and, and, and then he was doing a critique of dispensationalism. No, he actually he went to Biola University for undergraduate he went to Western Seminary, which is a dispensational seminary for graduate school. And in his own words, he was a dyed-in-the-wool dispensationalist, but yet he eventually uh, became a covenant theologian. So I think uh, you'll find his series very helpful, very gracious, and just give you a little bit more background on why dispensationalism is so pervasive in America, things like the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, and, and so forth. So Now, if you don't have time to listen to the three-part Sunday School series, that he did. I've given you a link to a podcast by Ligonier called Five Minutes in Church History with Stephen Nichols, and he did a little segment on dispensationalism. So, and then I've got a couple more uh, resources there listed for you, a couple more books, one of which we have in our library. There's a, a section in the book by Michael Glodo, a chapter in the book, where he discusses the history of dispensationalism. So I think it's just important for us to even though there's a little bit of, when we talk about differences, I know there's a little bit of tension in the air, but just to, to, to read what other people have written, to, to examine some of the, the history and so forth, and to just to do that in an in a agreeable and friendly and gracious manner. And so I give those to you to research on your own. But what I want to point out here now is to go to, because again, I just want to respond somewhat uh, to this thing that where where whenever it says that you're saying more than Scripture has explicitly said, you're imposing this on the biblical covenants. And I just don't think that's fair, and I want to prove that to you from the writings of the Confession itself and from those who wrote the Confession, that these were sincere men who were trying to expound and correctly handle the, the Word of God. So let's see what the Confession itself says about its approach to theology. Question 4 of, the, of our Catechism asks... What is the Word of God? And the answer is... Can you guys sing it? Come on, girls. Oh, come on. Step it up. <laughs> the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. So what is the only certain rule of faith and obedience? It's the Word of God. So we're not, we don't want to add anything to it. We don't, don't want to impose anything on it. The, 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 the Catechism states that. But of course, the Catechism is based on the confession itself, it derives the questions from the confession. And a very key text that we should be familiar with in the confession is chapter 1, paragraph 6, which says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Notice, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. So our confession itself states that, listen, this is the confession, it's a useful document, it summarizes what we believe about the Bible, but yet it is not to be placed above the Bible. Okay, that's, that's in their own words. But furthermore, if we look at the preface to the confession, 
And the, pre- the, the, the title of that section is called To the Judicious and Impartial Reader. Um, they say this. He says, we, we have also taken care to affix texts of Scripture at the bottom for the confirmation of each article in our confession, in which work we have studiously endeavored to select such as are most clear and pertinent for the proof of what is asserted by us. Our earnest desire is that all into whose hands this may come would follow that never enough commended example of the noble Bereans who searched the scriptures daily that they might find out whether the things preached to them were so. So what are they saying here? They're saying, hey, don't take our word for it. Here's the confession. This is what we think the Bible teaches on these subjects. But we want you to be noble Bereans and and search the scriptures. And that's why we put proof text at the bottom of each of the... uh, paragraphs there so that you can look these things up because we want you to to be assured that this comes from scripture but lastly let me make let me read to you a statement from nehemiah cox who is who is considered the senior editor or one of the senior editors of the confession and in his book on uh, about um, the divine covenant he said i will only add this that on the whole My aim has been to speak the truth in love and to take my notions from the scriptures, not grafting any preconceived opinions of my own onto them. Where the evidence of truth appears, let it not be refused because it is offered in a mean dress and presented under the disadvantage of a rude and unpolished style. But consider instead the reason of what is said and with the noble Bereans search the scriptures to see whether these things be so or not. And the Lord give you understanding in all things. So the point of what we what, what I want uh, us to arrive at here is to recognize that the uh, unless we disagree, unless we think that they're not telling the truth, we have to look and say the, the men who uh, penned, who authored our confession of faith, had a sincere intent to expound the Word of God, to rightly handle the Word of Truth. Uh, to not impose something preconceived onto it. So I, I think it, it's, um, we need to just take them at their word at that. So, so I think when somebody says that you're imposing something on the text, I think that that's um, really kind of a subtle kind of ad hominem when you're kind of questioning the motives or the character of, of people who are trying to correctly handle the Word of God. So those are my friendly comments on that. Um, and the last thing that I want to present to you here is that is a statement from James Renahan in his book, which we have in our library. It's his commentary on the, the Baptist Confession of Faith. And this will kind of summarize and um, encourage us as we think about getting into the actual text of the, the chapter next week. He says, When reading through the text of the Confession, one consistently encounters the wonders of the Gospel. And then he goes on to take a little segment from every chapter or from from several representative chapters to talk about how each of them kind of ties in uh, the gospel to it. Uh, But but with regard to chapter 7, which is the chapter that we're studying or getting ready to study, he says, We learn that that salvation is based in the eternal covenant of redemption. Now remember the verses that we referenced in the beginning, 2 Peter uh, 1.9, Titus 1.2, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, where it was um, literally before times eternal, before the foundation of the world. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the eternal covenant of redemption, where God determined to save an, a, a people for himself. 
uh, within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that's what we're going to be uh, covering in chapter 7. But he goes on to say, In no way does the confession present dry and dusty theology. Rather, it is full of life and vigor. So I hope that as we continue to study confession that you will agree with that, that it is, it's not dry and dusty theology, it's full of life and vigor. And so this has just been an introduction to, the lay, to lay the foundation for our study of chapter 7. And so I hope that as we continue the study that you will agree that it's a wondrous covenant, it's a devotional experience, and that you will encounter the wonders of the gospel full of life and vigor. Let's pray. Lord God, we just praise you again for the opportunity that we have to study your word. And just pray that you would uh, prepare us, prepare our hearts for worship as we go to hear um, Pastor Edwards this morning. And as we sing praises to your name, bring us back safely again next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.